Looking for the latest Black legal news? Black event? Black empowerment merch? Or even a Black lawyer? Then look no further. TheBlackLawyers.com is your one-stop shop for all your legal needs and Black community resources. Check us out today. Again, TheBlackLawyers.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Black Lawyers Podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing attorney, host, and author, Ebony K. Williams. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Black Lawyers Podcast. Today, we're excited to have Ebony K. Williams, attorney, author, and host with us today. How are you? Thank you for joining. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure, dear. I'm excited to join uh, and speak with you. Yes, yes, yes. So we're going to jump in right into hot topics. I make all my guests do legal hot topics. You're a lawyer, so this should be pretty simple for you. <laughs> uh, starting with the um, the Young Thug trial, everyone knows that he is at some level on trial for his lyrics, amongst other things. But what's interesting that happened this week, uh, the judge ordered a juror who decided, decided to skip jury duty um, and go on vacation, ordered her to do a 30-page paper. Now, she is a college student. She isn't a law student. I think she had to do APA style, you know, over 10 resource, uh, uh, citing 10 resources. What are, your, what are your thoughts about the judge ordering her a paper instead of a fine or jail time? Do you think that's fair? I love it. I think that is so much more productive than just putting somebody uh, incarceration. I mean, what's that going to do in terms of productivity? Uh, that's like purely punitive. Uh, you know, the 30 page paper. I mean, that's not light work, you know, um, but frankly, it will. I, I guarantee you it will strengthen her writing skills um, and she will think twice about avoiding her civic duty of jury duty the next time. I think it's so important, um, particularly that we as as black folks uh, step up and, and report to jury duty. I know it can be annoying and sometimes we lose money, but, you know, when we want justice in a system that's supposed to be a jury of our peers, we got to show up and participate in that. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you said that. I think, you know, jail time, even if it was 20 days, that wouldn't have done anything. And the paper is is on the importance of jury duty. Um, and just in case people wonder, yes, I don't some people said, Well, was the juror black? She was a black, she was a black girl. She was a young black uh girl who had graduated from college. So uh I agree. She, you know, is agreeing to participate as a jury of, of peers, you gotta show up. Um so anyway, thank you for that. Um, moving on to another hot topic, kind of local to where I am in California. I'm sure you've heard of Bruce Beach. I'm sure you heard about a, a year ago. Yes, a year ago, they, you know, after years and years of fighting to get the beach back, this family, this Black family got their beach back uh, with the help of the Sidley Austin Law Firm um, who helped get them the beach back about a year ago. And then about two weeks ago, a story goes viral where um, they decided to sell it back and only for $20 million. And everyone's like, uh, what are you doing? Like, I would hold on to that beach, you know, for the rest of my life. And I would pass it on to my kids. I would keep it, you know, general generation generational wealth in the family. And so the Black Lawyers podcast did some digging because we actually interviewed the attorney over the original transaction. And we're like, what's going on here? You did all this work to get it. Why are they selling it back for 20 million? 
And they exclusively broke to us because LA County will not allow them to develop it. They have a zoning restriction that says you cannot develop this land. So what are your thoughts on them essentially allowing them to fight back so hard to essentially get something that's, I don't want to say valueless, but not as valuable as it could be, almost strong arming them in the corner to basically sell it back to them? Because I feel like that's what happened. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I have a different read. Um, okay. I, I absolutely don't think they were being strong armed into selling it back. Um, I actually covered this. Uh, I covered the original um, story of the fight to get the the Bruce Beach land, which we know as Manhattan Beach, because um, I used to live out in LA as well. Uh, and I covered that uh, during season one of Holding Court. And today's Fresh Drop episode is called, Please Stop Selling Big Mama's House. Um, and it is a reference to this exact situation. Nobody said it would be easy, yo. Um, my read is it's laziness. My my read is, you know, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did. It never will. That's Frederick Douglass. And absolutely, L.A. County is not in the business of empowering generations of Black families to have that type of wealth, which is why this was a fight in the first place. Acquiring the land back from the city was only step one of a process. Step two of that process would have required the hard, long, expensive work of challenging city council and ordinances to undo those provisions that would prohibit the development. And it's been done before. It can be done again. So I think it was um, a lack of will, um, a lack of tenacity by the family uh, members. And not all the family members, it's important to note, agreed with selling it back. Um, many family members felt that was the wrong thing to do and thought that the ancestors that acquired that land to begin with would not have wanted that um, outcome and would have wanted to fight a little bit harder. And I'm good friends with Tay Hansberry, who was a part of the committee. She's the um, niece, grandniece of Lorraine Hansberry, of course. Um, and she was a part of that team also of grassroots local advocates. So I, I was disheartened to see them selling Big Mama's house, so to speak. That is invaluable land right there, Manhattan Beach, you know, oceanfront, LA County proper. Um, I think it could have been handled differently. I, I, and I'm glad you mentioned that it wasn't like it was the whole entire family's decision. Obviously, there were obviously some family members probably that wanted to hold on to that. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I'm, I'm actually interested. I I love that you were part of covering the story um, because not all outlets, outlets necessarily covered this story. And it just really highlights to your point uh, the importance of Black ownership, Black land ownership, because Bruce Beach is one of many stories where land was taken away. Uh, so, yeah, I do think it's unfortunate they could hold on to it. You know, I envision if they did hold on to it and fight through the development rules and all of that, that they could have done something like a salamander resort, uh, like that, the former. That was the vision. Yeah, that was the vision of Mr. Bruce, you know, that family patriarch to develop a true resort scenario for yeah. Black families to come comfortably. Um, and it's sad that now South L.A. won't have that. Won't have that. And if they do have it, it won't be owned by the obviously the Bruce family. Well, at least it won't be owned by that family. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Well, thank you for your 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 take on that. Um, I, again, like I said, they they made their decision, and so now, unfortunately, they just have to live by it. I mean, they have twenty twenty million dollars, but like some people joke and say, nothing. Is, I was going to say, I, I know there's some one, there's one house in L.A. that's <laughs> I mean, they're not getting twenty million dollars. Third, a third of that's going to their legal team, likely. Right. Uh, a third of it's going to the federal government and state government and local. And then they have to divide it amongst the family. 
Okay. So, oh, so it's really not is not that much. <laughs> uh, moving on to our last hot topic. Uh, you do television work. Um, obviously, you've done Real Housewives. You've done news. You've done so much TV network stuff. So you more than anybody knows a TV network contract. I'm sure you know about a contract. So I'm sure you're familiar with TJ Holmes and Amy at uh, Good Morning America. And again, you know, prefacing it with the story being about how they had a consensual affair amongst adults. They are on the same level. There is no superior, inferior. So there was no, you know, human resource conflict there. What are your thoughts on, because there was so much maybe outside pressure um, that perhaps GMA or ABC is maybe looking at more of the morality clause, maybe in this particular situation to get away with potentially letting them go uh, permanently. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I don't think ABC News would be getting away with anything. I think they would be well within their legal scope to terminate them on the basis. I'm more than sure there's a morality clause in both TJ and Amy's contract. They are standard course for those of us who've worked in network or cable news. Um, and I think they're well within their right as an organization to say, if you choose to engage in anything and, you know, this type of... Um, infidelity type of behavior is just but one example, right? It could have been a DUI. It could have been um, drug use. It could have been anything that damages or even presents an opportunity of damage to the reputation for the organization. And let's not make any mistake about it, Jay. This is Disney. This is the Disney company. <laughs> this is, you work for ABC News. You work right. for, for, for Bob Iger and the Disney organization. Yeah. It, the paramount of family values as it comes to and good naturedness when it and and good ethics and morals that is baked into the cake baby so i have no sympathy for neither tj nor amy you you did what you did and now you have to lie in the bed that you have made pun intended pun intended i was gonna say pun intended they're literally gonna have to lie in the bed i mean you know, there were some early reports that, oh, they were confident they would be clear. They didn't technically break an HR rule. Yeah, like you said, maybe you didn't break an HR rule. But again, that morality clause is put in there purposely very broadly so that companies can pick and choose what things they think are immoral and therefore why they can let you go. That's why it's put in there the way it is. So, uh, yeah, it should be interesting to see. I know no final, final decisions have been made, but they're in the process of doing that. And supposedly he, you know, is gearing up. And then I want to say somebody said, then he tried to throw in the race card. I said, well, this is one time I'm not going to let somebody <laughs> Oh I, don't, I don't think the culture is here for TJ. Um, and most of us know him colloquially or casually throughout the industry. Um, you know, the, the, the optics aren't great. You know, you um, apparently, and now his ex-wife, soon to be ex-wife is speaking out. She is an attorney as we are, um, a beautiful black woman. I've done philanthropy work with her through Rock Nation where she was chief of staff for a while. Um, I, I think he picked the wrong one to play with. Yeah, for sure, for sure. For sure. Um, I think that was the one of the other interesting parts of the story that he did this to a black attorney. Like, did you really think you were gonna do this to a black a black woman attorney and like and just sell off into the sunset literally? Um, you know, with Amy. Yeah, I'm not sure what he was thinking, but like you said, in due in due time, uh, you know, they they will have to line the bed that they laid. And um, 
so with that being said, that that was our round of hot topics. Thank you very much. I know you would do an excellent job <laughs> at them. I know I would have a good time doing hot topics with you. I wanted to dive more into more questions about you. Obviously, some of our listeners know who you are, um, but some of some of them want to know more. Um, and so I first just want to ask you, who was Ebony K. Williams before the lawyer? The, the author, the host, who were you before? Like, where did you go to high school? Where did you go to college? Like, you know, what was your path before all of this? Sure. Well, I was a child is who I was before I was a lawyer. Um, and I say that because I started practicing at 23 years old. So I really don't have a recollection of an adult version of myself pre my legal career. Um, so I, I knew I always wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I was a very, um, precocious child, a very curious child. I am an only child. Um, uh, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina to a very strong, very, um, insistent black woman, uh, named Gloria, single mother, um, went to public schools my whole life, uh, was blessed to go to a visual and performing arts magnet, um, for six through 12. And then I immediately... Um, was able to attend UNC Chapel Hill on a full academic merit scholarship where I studied Black studies uh, as an undergraduate and communications. And then I went straight to law school at Loyola University, New Orleans College Law. Oh, wow. wow. And, you know, with your very strong background, you know, being an only child, being very driven, um, why do you think you chose law school over maybe something else? Why, why, why law school? Succinctly, law school was a space that I knew, and being an attorney uh, specifically, uh, there's the JD going to law school, completing an, a legal uh, education, and then there is the taking and passing of a bar exam, um, which actually makes you a lawyer. And that part was important to me um, because a big part of being in this space as an, an, a Black woman attorney was occupying a space that was not designed and is not designed for us. Right. So uh, knowing that I was a black girl named Ebony of all, you know, very kind of pronounced black experience growing up in the American South, wanting everything this world has to offer. I knew I needed to establish credibility. I knew I needed to establish a positioning that said um, I'm not to be played with. And I think nothing really does that better than being um, an attorney at law and being um, of legal mind and understanding and knowledgeable um, and incredible around issues of policy and statute and, um, you know, all the things, you know, liberty and freedom and righteousness. So that that's, that's why it was always going to be law school for me. And I get this question often. I'm sure you do as well, Jay, you know, well, I'm thinking about an MBA or I'm thinking about, you know, this master's or maybe even this PhD program. And I think education in all its forms is noble. But there is something very special when you walk into a space and you've got that credibility and that credential that comes with being an attorney. Absolutely. 100% agree. What was your favorite law school class? Constitutional law, con law. I was one of two A's. Thank okay. you. Okay. Okay. Excuse me. All right. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, attending law school, as you said, the space was not designed for us. So the schools are not necessarily designed for us. Has there been a time either in law school or practicing like a notable time where maybe you felt discrimination, even if it wasn't like outwardly, but you knew you were being discriminated against? 
Oh, it was outward for me. Um, I talk about it in detail in my new book, Bet on Black, you know, the good news about being Black in America today, which comes out January 31st. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, my biggest uh, example of that overt anti-Blackness was when I was selected to be the uh, team member on our national moot court team at Loyola. Um, and Loyola is known for its... Um, trial law and appellate law competitive teams. They're historically white, they're historically male. Um, I represent to this day, one of very few black people and black women to be on like the national team. Now the school had other teams, sports law, environmental law, uh, that traveled and competed at high levels, but the national team, we're the ones with our name on the marble. Um, so when you go to Loyola today, I am enshrined. Um, and the chatter around the school, unfortunately, even from some of my um, black, uh, male colleagues was I would hold the team back. I was a affirmative action pick. Um, I was chosen because I was pretty. And a lot of other things that spoke to my uh, lack of qualification of being on that team as um, you know an elite academic and an elite uh, team member. Um, and we won regionals and you know came up very high at the national competition here in New York. So the proof was in the pudding. Proof was in the pudding. So yes, you are beautiful. Yes, you are a woman. Yes, you are black. But at the end of the day, your your intellect and your abilities is what got you there. And I think a lot of times I tell people that, you know, kind of have that hesitation in coming into this space because they know they're going to face those things. You kind of just have to already know that it's going to happen <laughs> and just let your work speak uh, for itself. I think that's all you can do because if you you know, try to give a speech to every single person that comes along that is going to discriminate you, you will be exhausted. You know, sometimes you just have to let your work speak for itself. Um, with that being said, what was your best moment in law school? Oh, winning the Moot Court team. Same thing. I, I really do believe that those um, moments of challenge, well, I'll frame it that way, are also the, the greatest opportunities for um, success. I once... I remember lowering my expectation uh, when I argued, because I argued on to the moot court team because I was a transfer student coming from Southern University's Law Center in Baton Rouge. And, uh, you know, everybody was saying, you know, it was so audacious of me. Who, who did I think I was? Blah, 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 blah. So I was like, well, God, you know, you know, if, if I make moot court at all, you know, uh, I'll be happy just being on sports law team or pawn law team or whatever. Um, I reduced my expectation from national team because I thought I was, I thought that would be wanting too much. And then God, you know, delivered on national team for me, which also came with a huge scholarship. Uh, and I didn't even know that came with it when I was uh, arguing. And I said to myself, Jay, I said, that, let that, that will be the exact last time that I will ever um, undermine my own potential and my own um, achievement ceiling based off of other people's uh, insecurities and condemnations of my subordination. Um, so that was really my greatest moment when that, when that, you know, piece of paper, when they put that paper on the wall that said, these are the teams and this is the ranking. And this is really like, how is, how, how it's about to go down. And my name was at the very top and I ended up carrying, you know, that moot court team. And we argued in front of our whole school and everybody was able to see like, damn, you know, she is really the truth. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we are blessed to have her. In fact, as an institution, and to this day, I'm actually on Loyola's President's Council. And I mean, you know, it's just to me, it just it was it was a perfect opportunity for me to prove to myself my 
capabilities and I've never, you know, looked back. Well, I love what you said that you, you know, you kind of lowered your standard for yourself, yeah. but God came in and uh, what I say, I, I'm, I'm a faith believer as well. I love when my God shows, I, I say he shows up and he shows out. I love when he shows up and shows out. So I think that's a perfect example of that. Um, you know, you've already hint, hinted to this. We were talking about how, you know, the legal profession, you know, I say the statistic all the time, less than 5% is black. That number doesn't really raise, you know, uh, from year to year. What do you think we can do to maybe encourage the next generation of lawyers? Because I'm sure you know Generation Z um, loves, you know, the TikTok and the Instagram and the makeup. And and no, everybody can't be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, teacher. I understand that. But we do need somebody to be the doctor, lawyer, engineer. So what do you what do you think um, we can do, uh, you know, folks like myself and you, what, what do you think we can do to encourage the next generation of Black attorneys? Well, I think we're doing it. I think the the content that we create, I think, you know, like you said, you have to sometimes meet a generation where they are. And this generation is on social media. They are consumers. They are on their phones incessantly. Um, so for you to have this fantastic podcast, Black Warriors podcast, for me to have Holding Court, which is now nominated for an NAACP Image Award for Best News and Politics podcast, for them to see that it's not an either or. You know, to see that you can exist in full spaces. And in fact, we should be in all spaces as Black people and as Black women, um, that you can be. Um, and that's the nature I know for sure of my show. You know, it is, um, it's entertaining, it's high octane, it's got a little bit of shade to it. Uh, but ultimately, you are learning about deferred prosecution. You are learning the difference between a trust, a will, and an estate. You are understanding uh, custody and spousal supports, best interest of the children statutes as you know, controlling. So it's it's really kind of creating a scenario where this generation sees that you don't have to sacrifice cultural relevancy to also do the work of critically important. You know, we are not a free people as Black people in America without the Thurgood Marshalls, the Constance uh, Baker Motley's, and, and the litany of Black litigators, Barbara Jordan, you know, that really can show up and show out it comes to making sure that our rights, our basic civil liberties are protected. So our lawyers are fundamental. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we you you already hinted to that, that next question, which was you were saying that, you know, you just always knew it was the law for you. But what I what I love is you you became a lawyer, you, you know, you didn't obviously out the gate become anything else, but you've become so many other things since then. So like you said, you exist in other, even if you weren't you know, if you're not practicing, you're a host, you're writing books, you're doing other things. Um, you were on the Real Housewives of, of New York City. Uh, this outside of maybe Atlanta and Potomac, these franchises typically don't have Black women uh, as a part of the franchise. So that was a huge achievement um, to have you on the show, have a visual of, again, someone that looks like us, um, you know, representing like one of the most powerful cities in the world, the money-making city, right? Um, what are your thoughts, just just thinking back on your time on the show in terms of you using it, uh, sometimes as a platform to call people out in certain racial injustices or, or, you know, just biases. What are your thoughts about how you use the platform sometimes for that, for that purpose? Well, I speak to that exact question in the book. Chapter three is all about my reflection. Well, it's about a lot of things. It's called disruption. 
Okay. Um, which I think is an important tenet to unpack as Black folks in a, in a space that, again, wasn't designed for us. And I'm talking about our uh, homeland here of America. And I, I frame my time on Real Housewives of New York. It started as an experience and it ended up actually being a protest. And that wasn't, um, it, it, it wasn't predetermined. I'll say that. That ended up being a product of the circumstances I found myself in, right? Um, I went into the experience very open-minded and very curious as to how this would play out with me being the very first Black woman after 12 years. What I found was a scenario where some, most of my castmates um, were hostile towards my insistence on centering a Black experience, you know, um, and that was something I was unwilling to accommodate. I was not going to accommodate hostility uh, because I divorced myself from white comfort some years ago. So I think that the expectation for when we show up in those spaces is sit down, don't touch anything, don't draw too much attention to yourself, and, and don't, whatever, you, whatever you, yeah, um, ma maintain your position as sidekick, i.e. subordinate, uh, and decenter yourself in lieu of the centeredness of our white experience, as has been the case since, you know, we landed on these shores. So when I showed up how I show up, which is fabulous and always centering Blackness, uh, that was met with deep resentment and hostility by most of my castmates and a significant part of the audience, including some of the Black audience, right? That said, well, we watch this show to watch white antics. We're just trying to escape. Yeah, well, I don't care really why, what your why is, because I've got my own why and I'm the one that was given the apple. So because it, when you get the apple, you do with it what you want to do. But my season where I held the apple, I was absolutely going to go all the way there, celebrate Blackness, which is really something that we don't see enough of on television, period. You know, we see a lot of Black trauma stories. We see a lot of Black heartbreak. Where else do you see a group of women um, dress up in their, their finest Gucci or Sergio Hudson, um, put on their beat face and celebrate? Well, you touched upon my one of my final questions, which was your book. Is there anything else about the book that you would yes. like to tell the audience since it is coming out? So I would say that my intention for my people is in the book. If something were to happen to me and God knows I want to be here as many days as possible, but I would be remiss if I didn't say this pandemic taught us all the power of our mortality, right? Um, and the one thing I love about being an author, in addition to the work I do in other spaces, podcasting and television. Um, th the books I write will outlast me and my grandchildren, right? That is a medium that will be here for generations. Um, I have a chapter called Leverage, which is, you know, I start that chapter with, it's really hard to be free when you don't own anything, right? So that kind of goes back to our conversation with how, with, with Bruce Beach rather, you know, we, we've, I'm obsessed with home ownership right now. I just bought my first property and I'm almost 40 years old and I wish it was something that I was positioned to do sooner in life. And I really want black people to, you know, where, wherever you live, however you do it, whether it's tenants in common, there's different ways to do it. But, but know that when we talk about wealth building, home ownership is the gateway entry point for what that looks like. Know that it's not a coincidence that Black people have but 10% of the wealth of white Americans. And yet we own only about 40 to 45% of our homes and white America owns 75% of theirs. And if you think those metrics are a coincidence, you're missing it.
Okay. They are totally correlated. Like your Instagram so that people know uh, where to follow. Sure. You can find me on Instagram and really only Instagram at Ebony K. Williams, E-B-O-N-I-K Williams. I don't do TikTok. I don't do Twitter. I It's Instagram for me. Okay. It's Instagram for Ebony. Uh, so yeah, so our viewers, you can follow her there for the updates. But in the meantime, the book is coming out. The podcast is out. We can't wait to see the NAACP Awards where you are nominated. That's huge. We're super excited for you. We just want to close out with the, uh, the Black Excellence Moment of the Week. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with this meme. It's probably been on Instagram like a million times. There's a little Black boy holding his stomach and he's looking to the side like he's in trouble. <laughs> uh, so Dernest Collin, uh, he's actually a high school, he's uh, he's a football player now, uh, you know, still in school, uh, but he actually recently struck a name, image, and likeness deal with Popeyes. Uh, he was getting his followers to tag them and let them know he he loved Popeyes. So you never know how one, something you could do just briefly in time can actually turn into a business opportunity. So I think it's really cool um, that in addition to ownership in the space of land ownership, that we have to own our trademarks. We have to own our image, our likeness. We have to be able to monetize these things. Um, and so I think it's really cool that he struck this name image and likeness deal with Popeye. So he is our Black Excellence Moment of the Week. And with that being said, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Ebony K. Williams, for coming on the Black Lawyer Podcast, uh, where we're rooting for everyone Black. Take care, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Black Lawyers Podcast. This is your host, Jay Carter. Until next time, please follow us on all our social media handles at the Black Lawyers Podcast.